Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. At the 2018 POD, Partnership Opportunities and Drug Delivery Conference, Merck's Dr. Marion Gindi moderated a panel on how mRNA vaccines represent a promising alternative to conventional vaccine approaches for infectious diseases as well as oncology indications. Representatives from Moderna Therapeutics, Sanofi, Tiba Biotech, and Merck joined in the discussion with Dr. Gindi. Please note that the 2019 POD conference takes place in Boston on October 7th and 8th. Enjoy the podcast. So thanks again for the kind introduction. I'm Marion Gindi. I'm from Merck & Company, and I currently lead a discovery pharmaceutical sciences group where my group is responsible for supporting pharmaceutical and formulation development for Merck's portfolio through candidate selection for entry into interest in human studies. I've got a wonderful set of panelists here today, and each of them I'm going to give the opportunity to introduce themselves, and then we'll walk you through a couple of key discussion points that we wanted to inform the audience on in terms of development of mRNA therapeutics and vaccines. And so without further ado, maybe we'll start with Sybil and work our way down. So I'm Sybil Williams. I am here at Merck Boston. I am in our Discovery Oncology group, and my group is involved in a lot of the cancer vaccine work that we do at Merck. My name is Danny Casimiro. I head external R&D, as well as vaccine platforms at Sanofi Pasteur. Been with the company for about a year now, and we've been looking at mRNA. In fact, we made a deal with Translate Bio early this year when it comes to applications for vaccines. My name is Christian Mandel. I'm co-founder and advisor to a small new biotech here, Tiba Biotech, that has a new delivery technology for RNA. It's kind of logical from my past. I've been working on RNA vaccines for a long time, previously as the head of research at Novartis Vaccines, where we established a self-amplifying RNA platform, and already before that, in my academic career, where I was already probing into replicating RNA vaccines. So my name is Aaron Almerson. I head the formulation group at Moderna, and I'm there for now five years, which is an eternity when you think about mRNA companies. And we have a very good collaboration with Merck, so obviously excited about that and competing with Translate, of course. So it's a pleasure to be on this panel. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Jin Jin Shi from Harvard Medical School. I'm actually on the academic side, so I guess most of the, you guys here in this room are from industry side. Though uh, our lab is very interesting in uh, developing new nanotechnologies for mRNA delivery. Particularly, we were interested to uh, restore tumor suppressors using mRNA technologies. There's a lot of potential, with, as we think. We are from the academic side, so we are not competing with everybody. We actually want to collaborate with everybody. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you. So I think with the introductions, hopefully you'll appreciate that we've got panelists from large pharma. We've got folks that have strong experiences in the biotech arena and obviously representation from academia. And so deliberately, we're trying to cross-pollinate the discussion today with perspectives across all those areas. But maybe just as a preface to start off our panel, while we're here under the topic of mRNA therapeutics and vaccines, I thought we'd kick off with a little bit of an explanation as to what an mRNA vaccine is. And in the context of prophylactic vaccines for infectious diseases, and Sybil, you alluded already to the work that you and others are doing in cancer vaccines. So, Danny, if I can ask you to perhaps kick us off with an mRNA vaccine in the context of infectious diseases. 
traditionally, the way we make vaccines is by we would use recombinant technology to express antigens, protein antigens. And then we would formulate those protein antigens with adjuvants or excipients. And that's really what we give to individuals, to subjects, in terms of active immunization. Now, the mRNA vaccines just changes the paradigm altogether because in this case, you don't need to produce now the antigen recombinantly. You're using the body's machinery now to produce that antigen. So RNA, as it implies, is that you're, by in vitro transcription, you're producing from the DNA, linearized DNA, the RNA itself. It could be self-amplifying, it could be naturally modified mRNA, could be just unmodified, sequence-optimized mRNA, and then packaging that M biomolecule in commonly nowadays lipid nanoparticles. And then that will serve as the active vaccination agent to individuals. The advantage, obviously, is that it's a platform. With protein antigens, you can imagine protein antigen 1 can be produced in saccharomyces, Protein antigen 2 can be produced in E. coli. That's a big burden from a manufacturing standpoint. Just imagine the capital you have to make if you have different processes, manufacturing substrates for even different components of a vaccine, if not for different vaccine products. The advantage of the mRNA, given it's a platform, it's a common process, whether it's mRNA for flu, RSV, or HSV, you can imagine one factory, which is a multi-product factory, and it could manufacture large volumes for, say, a flu vaccine, or you can purpose it for markets or vaccines which are lower volume. So in this case, you do save a great deal in terms of the capital investment you're making for manufacturing a product or multiple products. That's really helpful, Danny. Thank you. In terms of biological performance, do you see any potential advantages that an in-situ antigen production would bring relative to exogenous delivery of a vaccine antigen? There are immunologically, you have the ability to express an antigen in its more native form because that's how it naturally happens. You get an infection, the antigens produced inside the cell. In this case, you're using the mRNA to simulate very similar processes and do have a, the ability to induce a type of immunity which you don't get by protein immunization. There are challenges. We can get to that later on. I was going to add that uh, you can sort of do multivalency a bit more differently now. Back to the point about manufacturing, you can have multiple antigens in the same system more easily. Is that presumably as a big advantage? Yes. Thank you. So again, just in the spirit of contextualizing some of the opportunities, both in terms of vaccines and even as therapeutics, maybe I'll turn over to Sybil and have her describe a little bit of the work that the field and obviously through our collaborations at Merck with Moderna are exploring in terms of personalized cancer vaccines or shared vaccine antigens. So along the spirit of mRNA and certainly encoding for multiple antigens is the idea of using this modality for a personalized cancer vaccine approach. So obviously cancer vaccines are not a new idea. People have been trying to generate cancer vaccines 
for a long time. But what is new, at least in the past few years, is our ability to actually find antigens that are present within a tumor that are not present anywhere else in the body. And this is because of the amount of mutations that occur within each tumor. And these mutations can serve to have new proteins, and these proteins are antigens that are specific to that person's tumor. What we're finding is that these antigens really are quite private. They are, what we're finding is that these neoantigens really are not shared between people or between tumors. And so the idea of a personalized cancer vaccine is that you perform whole exome sequencing on the tumor, compare that to the PBMCs or normal tissue from that person, and then you determine which of these peptides will be capable of being presented by that patient's specific HLA. And then a vaccine, and then there's a complex algorithm that is meant to predict which of these antigens is most likely to be immunogenic. And then really importantly, so what you need for a cancer vaccine, one, you need the mutations to be immunogenic. They're going to be expressed by HLA in that person. And two, you need them to be highly expressed in the tumor such that driving an immune response towards that antigen is going to be efficacious in driving an anti-tumor response. So those antigens are chosen with those things in mind. Then a vaccine can be manufactured. In our collaboration with Moderna, our neoantigen vaccine consists of 20 antigens. We believe that we can probably increase that by decreasing flank length on antigen as well as increasing the amount of RNA that we encapsulate. So we believe that we can go up further. And so that is one of the advantages of RNA in this space. So then that's what we do when we deliver these in LMPs. And another advantage to using mRNA in this space is the ability for repeat dosing without driving any sort of response to the vaccine. We've talked a lot about vaccines, both prophylactic and therapeutic, but obviously one of the other opportunity space for mRNA are protein replacement therapy approaches. I know, Jinjin, you've had some experience or maybe you're working on areas where you're looking to treat unique cardiovascular diseases with mRNA therapy. Do you want to chat a little bit about that? I would like to say we are working with a bunch of different applications at this stage. And so the one particular example I we're talking about actually is about cancer. We just recently published a paper in Nature about medical engineering. So but the unique niche we found is Instead of using mRNA you know, to generate the therapeutic protein, we actually want to restore the last tumor suppressors, for example, like P53 or P10. In the paper we published, so we, we did it for P10, and as we all know, this is probably two most widely mutated genes in a bunch of different cancers. And for example, in P10, about 50% of the advanced prostate cancer patients, they have the P10 either mutation or lost function. So we think using this technology to restore the OXA protein replacement therapy, particularly you know, more generally saying, and that will actually induce a very, very nice apoptosis of the uh, tumor cells. And 
Meanwhile, we think it's very exciting about that is because in the normal cells, I would say depending on the tumor suppressor you want to restore, in normal cells, you know, you have this expression of these tumor suppressors. So when you even transfect those normal cells with the mRNA nanoparticles, you don't see pretty much big effect from there, at least from all what we've done. And then the, compared with gene therapy, I would say messenger RNA has the unique features like changing the expression, so you don't worry about the genome integration issues, and then also you don't worry too much about side effect. So that's actually one example I'd like to share with you, and also recently working with other diseases we would like to talk about later. Thank you. So maybe I'll turn to Christian, ask you to perhaps share with the audience a little bit more about the self-amplifying RNA approach, given Novartis's early work and, frankly, leadership in the space. And so perhaps you can describe the uniqueness of the approach and maybe some advantages relative to the mRNA theories that we were... Perhaps in a little bit bigger context, as Danny described, it's great that we can produce the protein in the host. But of course, that idea is older than RNA. I mean, people have tried the same quite a bit longer ago with DNA. And there's many reasons why DNA approaches didn't progress as fast or as successful as one thought, but one is that it's often not potent enough, especially when you go to humans. It works quite well in mice and smaller rodents, but then when you go up the evolutionary ladder, it just turns out that cells are not really prepared, human cells are not prepared to express from a plasmid. Now, RNA, messenger RNA, solves some of those problems because you don't need to deliver into the nucleus, you deliver into the cytoplasm, and the cell knows what to do with the messenger RNA because that's what it does all the time. But even there, that may not always be potent enough, and that's where the self-amplifying messenger RNAs come from, where we basically, and I'm by training a molecular virologist, and I just love to use viruses to make something useful out of them, and that's basically what you do with a self-amplifying RNA. You take an RNA virus, delete the structural proteins, but maintain all the proteins that cause this RNA to replicate. But not replicate in the sense of making infectious particles because it's missing all the structural proteins, but replicate just in the sense of making more RNA of itself. And then, of course, you can introduce your protein of interest. So the effect is that you amplify within the cell your effect. So when you introduce one mRNA molecule, that one mRNA molecule for usually not a very long time will make protein. If you introduce one replicon, self-amplifying RNA, it will start self-amplifying and make a lot of your protein of interest. But that's not all why I think that this is often very useful because don't forget this is derived from a virus and viruses are wonderful creatures of evolution. So they don't just make more of themselves they have also very elaborate and largely still not understood ways of how to interact with the host cell. They interact with the innate immune system of the host cell, but vice versa, of course, the host organisms have evolved over millions of years to recognize viruses, because if we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sitting here because we would have been extinct. So we can take advantage of all those evolutionary mechanisms to induce a very strong immune response. So long story short, self-amplifying RNAs may not be applicable to everything, and if you can get your effect with a normal messenger RNA, then that's probably the easier and more straightforward way. But there will be incidences where additional abilities that you have with self-amplifying RNAs 
will be instrumental. And that's why it's been tried. We did it at Novartis already, started 10 years ago. TIBA is also interested in that approach. Others are as well. I think there will be certain applications where that additional potency and this additional immune modulation that is intrinsic to viral genomes will be advantageous. Thank you. So I think what you've heard is that obviously to make a mRNA or self-amplifying mRNA vaccine or therapeutic, a big component of this first and foremost is the antigen design. And then the second component in the case of cancer vaccines is really the identification of those antigens specific to patients. Beyond that, there's chemistry that goes into chemical modification of the mRNA vaccine. And I think you've heard all panelists allude to very hot area of research and one that's still a heavy topic of investment, which is delivery. And so how do we get either the messenger RNA or the self-amplifying RNA into the right cell in the body to express the antigen of interest? So folks already have referred to LNPs. For those of the uneducated, these are lipid nanoparticles. They are essentially a well-developed system at this stage for nucleic acid delivery and in an area that has been explored previously for sRNA therapeutics and is resurging in the context of mRNA. But Christian, you as well are representing a company that's working on dendromere systems, and I know that others are also exploring alternative delivery technologies. And so maybe I'll just start with a couple of the folks that are working specifically in delivery and formulation. And perhaps, Erin, I can ask you to kick us off with what you see are the hurdles still to be gained with new delivery technologies beyond the ones that are almost tried and true, at least in terms of legacy molecules and have had some clinical precedence. And so where do mRNA delivery vehicles need to go to advance some of the opportunities that we've just discussed? An important moment in the history of LNPs is the approval of Onpatro two months ago for alnylam. They, they initiated sort of a resurgent effort in this in sort of mid-2000s when it was realized that delivery of the siRNAs was a bit of a problem. And that there's a solution there which then provided something of a template to people even before this approval to work on lipid nanoparticles for the much larger much more labile mRNAs. And I think there's been some success. We're progressing in their clinical trials using lipid nanoparticles. And there are also trials that do not rely on LMPs. They're probably now becoming the less common way. And we can talk about that separately. But sticking with the delivery agenda of trying to get potent and safe delivery, that is a remaining challenge. And it's a challenge based on the fact that I think we're really entering an era where we have to start to customize things for mRNA for different tissues and different applications. There are so many things you can think of doing, but it will be a case of horses for courses in, in the future, I believe. And one of the challenges is really being able to figure out how to translate what you're discovering in a, an in vitro system or a rodent system into a delivery that really works in humans. There's a reliance on expensive animal models. And I think the challenge there is that you know, because they're nanoparticles, they look a little bit like viruses, something weird that the immune system is going to want to work on. We're not like mice, I don't think, fortunately. And I'm not an immunologist, so I'll, I'll probably just... Some differences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there are remaining challenges. And so I think we're in a beginning of a, a curve whereby we'll make some advances based on 
things that we have already begun to unearth and deliver, and there are efforts within the mRNA companies to figure out the delivery. There are efforts within companies that want to do drug delivery to serve you know, nuclear gas to delivery, and this is all going to continue to propel innovation. But the cost of doing that innovation, I think, is a, something of a challenge, and we're looking for better, faster models to, to help us reduce that barrier. Christian? Just add here, I can actually add a quotation from your CEO, Stefan Bansell, who at some point said, I thought I had an RNA company, but I really have a delivery company. He didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> he said it publicly, so I think I can quote. No, but he was, of course, absolutely right there. There's a lot of things we can do with the RNA to improve it, no question, and various companies and academic institutions have done great work here. But at the end of the day, whether this will work or not is all about delivery, the efficiency of delivery, the safety of delivery, also the CMC properties of delivery. I think that's also why we're sitting here today at the delivery conference. That's really where the innovation is. And as already Danny and, and you pointed out, the field seems to gravitate around lipid nanoparticles right now because they have turned out to be most efficient. And there is now a wide range of different lipids, and so that can be used. But I'm not sure whether the development stops there. If I wouldn't say that, I probably wouldn't be representing a company that has a new delivery technology, which is in its early days. It's dendromeres, and too early to make big claims here, but the potentials that at least we think to address is one of the things that you want to make sure is that your delivery vehicle isn't reactogenic. So one of the major limitations is how much can you introduce, how often can you redose especially when it's also a gene replacement therapy. And of course, also outright toxicity. Lipids have the unpleasant potential to add up somewhere in our fatty tissues, end up in, in areas where you don't want it. I'm not saying that this is necessarily happening, but those are all questions that need to be addressed, which could potentially be addressed if you take a totally new entity. And like those endomers are, which are chemically well-defined, but can be modified in various ways to really modulate also the interaction between the lipid delivery molecule and the RNA, which may be another important point. And another issue that was already mentioned today is the ability of nucleic acids to deliver multiple antigens. And sometimes that may be just fine to do this if you have one antigen in one liposome particle, another antigen in another liposome particle. But you may have instances where you want to make sure that your various RNAs end up in the same cell. And for that, you want a delivery vehicle where you can be sure that you co-package your 10 different RNAs in the same particle. And again, we see a potential here for the dendromere technology that has a very high it's a very dense packed. It's not a vesicle like a lipid nanoparticle. It's really a lamellar structure. And cannot say the exact number here for confidentiality reasons, but a lot of RNA can be packaged into those, allowing co-delivery also into the same cell. So there's room for improvement here. And at the end of the day, like I also said already, with RNA versus self-amplifying RNA, I'm personally convinced that there will be room and applications for various types of RNAs, and also rooms and applications for various types of delivery vehicles. Besides lipid nanoparticles and dendromeres, there may be still other things coming up. And especially in this conference where everybody's thinking about delivery, I think it's good if everybody thinks in their own fields of research also, could this also be applicable to something like RNA delivery? Because I think there's a big need for improvements. So that's really helpful. And I think much of the discussion so far has collapsed into new delivery technologies to enable 
wider therapeutic windows, and obviously that's dependent on the application. In oncology, it will look different than it does for a prophylaxis single-shot vaccine versus some of the therapeutic applications that you've described, Christian. And so across the board, there's still a lot of room for designer vehicles to enable this multitude of applications. I want to go as well to the CMC components of this, since I think we would be remiss in terms of thinking about translational technologies if we didn't consider the value that came with technologies that had a more direct application in terms of the CMC properties. And so maybe an industrial perspective, I can ask Danny to comment a little bit about how he and his group and Sanofi are thinking in terms of the CMC space, and then I'll turn it over a little bit to Earn for some of his perspective on a lot of the work that he's doing at Moderna. Yeah, so from CMC space, there's still much to be done when it comes to RNA vaccines, right? The drug substance itself, the mRNA, cost of goods can still be fairly high in terms of manufacturing mRNA. May not be for vaccines, but just bear in mind, for vaccines, we are not pricing vaccines in the thousands or some of them are $100, but then most vaccines are talking about influenza, your, it's treated as a commodity itself, and there's a premium you can make out of influenza, but not that high of a premium, right? So cost of goods is a major consideration when it comes to vaccines. So we have to find ways by which we can improve productivity, robustness of the drug substance manufacturing. And there are many places where the cost of goods is a rising form. The ribonucleotides, the enzymes associated with with the production itself. Then you have to consider now the formulations, scaling up the formulation. You're able to scale up the drug substance. You should be able to try and scale up the formulation even more, right? Because you're thinking, I assume with LMP, for example, there is higher gram per amount compared to RNA. So one has to find downstream as well as formulation processes that would be amenable for GMP manufacturing. Certain solvents should be avoided. So there are many, many considerations for drug substance as well as drug product considerations for GMP manufacturing. And you have to treat them very early on in the investment because the promise of this technology is speed, right? Speed of manufacturing. What comes with speed is also speed in execution. Yeah, that's a really wonderful segue. I'll turn it to Earn because I think a lot of what you've described, especially for companies that have started at the beginning and have gone through the evolution of technology advancements and are now really entering phases of inflection points moving into commercialization thought processes, perhaps you could provide some guidance into your thoughts there. Yeah, I think Danny... Um highlighted important points about drug substance and drug product. And there's a third wheel drug substance if you're really working on new delivery. Pretty clear that regulators are going to want to have sponsors control their delivery materials, which are new chemical entities, to the same level that they would if you were developing a molecule drug. Of course, it's not a drug. You'd never deliver it by itself. But for the purposes of CMC control, you're really talking about a new drug. So this is work and expense that has to be recovered. And, of course, in concert with the work on the drug substance, the mRNA. And I'm an optimist. I think that, you know, we're probably where antibodies were, you know, in 1980. You know, it was expensive, it was inefficient. We didn't really know how to 
make high titers and so on. But I think there's a lot of great engineering that's going to be brought to bear to really improve the cost picture, which is a big, big thing, and also the efficiencies. And so scale is going to follow because, you know, there's going to be demands. If you think about vaccines that need to go to many, 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 many people and initially into 10,000-plus patient phase threes, this is not a small feat. pretty much have to be at your commercial scale there pretty early. So the next few years will be important in trying to push the limits on multiple fronts in CMCs. And I would add the last point I would add on this is just working with the regulators to define what the standards need to be. That's very helpful. So I want to maybe shift gears a little bit and think about partnership across the space and how we think about partnership either in large pharma or in biotech or in academics. And so maybe I'll just turn over to you. And, and a lot of the work that you're doing is if I may say, in the basic research setting, but how do you think about partnering either with other academics or biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies as a whole? Well, I would like to say, you know, currently our, most of our research was supported by the government, from the like, NIH or DOD. So, well, it's just a good thing, you know, the government would like to support it. But also we are open to certainly collaboration to uh, industry and other academic labs. But I think that one point I'd like to see, you know, in this field, you know, for more academic labs to be involved is really how can we reduce the cost of MRI? As I think other panelists are talking about, you know, the expensiveness of the MRI. Everything, you know, usually we do other from Trilink is one million grants, $2,800 for that. So it's, this is one thing I think, you know, from, from lab collaborative academic point of view is, you know, if the companies would like to willing to collaborate with us and explore our technologies or other technologies in other laboratories, that would be a very good thing for, the, for advancing this MRI field. Thank you. Sybil, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you think about partnerships in discovery oncology research. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're sort of at a, I don't know, I'd say a different time right now in oncology discovery research than we certainly have been 10 years ago, I would say. I think that we are exceptionally open to collaborating with both academic as well as biotech. The bottom line is, is that if we have an idea or if we see that other people have an idea that we're interested in, we'll go after that and we'll pursue all types of collaborations. At least in our discovery group, we're very open to all types of collaborations. Are there areas that specifically you go after rather than perhaps more opportunistically? I mean, I think it all depends on you know, the focus of what it is that you're interested in, right? I don't know that I can comment broadly on that. But, I mean, at least in oncology, I'd just like to go back to something that I think I've heard a lot of people on this panel say. We know how to do a lot of different things. We know how to disrupt protein-protein interactions using peptides. We know how to do things like replace tumor suppressors with RNA, DNA. What we really have a hard time doing is getting big things into cell. And so at the end of the day, especially for oncology, I think oncology is going to be a very, I don't want to use the word easy, but will be a good place to do a lot of this proof of concept work because as Marion had indicated, 
The tolerance for risk in oncology is a lot different than it is in an infectious disease in a prophylactic vaccination setting. But the bottom line is, is that we're interested in really being able to get big things into cells to do replacement. That's really the bottom line. Big things into cells <laughs> safely, quietly. Depends. Just you don't simple. necessarily need to be quiet about it in the space of vaccines. That's the beauty of vaccines, but just the right kind of quiet. So that's actually wonderful. And I think I'll echo, Christian, what you said earlier, which is there's a lot of diversity to be had in terms of how we think about getting big things into cells. And part of this, too, is ideally we think about approaches that haven't been tested in the past because as we're all sitting here and describing a lot of what we know inherent in that is that we're looking to make incremental changes. But I think the field is ready for disruptors, and it's likely that disruptors will come from places that haven't necessarily been explored previously. And so I want to hear perhaps a little bit more, if you've got reflections on that, as you start to think about applications outside of the dendromer space or how you've explored areas of delivery in your prior roles. Yes, I have. In my academic times, we started with the gene gun and gold particles, and that worked in mice. <laughs> when I joined Novartis a little bit more than, than 10 years ago and came with this idea, why do we bother to package RNA replicants into protein shells, into viral shells, because that needs cell culture and is a long process and expensive and difficult to upscale and all of this. Why don't we just deliver it by itself, which was the beginning of what we then called the self-amplifying messenger RNA platform. We took advantage of the field of siRNA delivery, right? So our colleagues in pharma at that point were delivering siRNA with liposomes, getting frustrated because the applications didn't work as well as everybody had hoped. But we said, okay, why can't we apply this to big RNAs? And they said, I don't know, nobody has ever tried, but let's try, and it worked. And I think that's a lot how innovation really happens, that somebody works on a certain field, somebody works on another field, and then somebody makes a connection. That's also, I think, why we come together in conferences. Absolutely. And so I see that we've just got a few minutes left, and perhaps maybe I'll take just a couple of seconds to summarize some of the key areas that I've heard described here today in terms of really opportunities to move forward in the future. One common theme across the board is really an interest in improving the manufacturability and robustness and control specific to the drug substance, both from the cost of goods perspective for academic collaborations, as well as obviously as we're thinking about commercializable products. And the second component across the board is delivery. And so the field is still really ripe for innovations in the space and technologies that are allow us to make the types of applications that we've described here today more common and broad and applicable across the board. And then last but not least, Ern, you've highlighted that a lot of this research is obviously really resource intensive more from an iterative perspective as well as from a modeling perspective. And it's not clear that that type of resource investment can be sustained for very much longer in a way that it's done. And so maybe some opportunities for people to think about ways where we can explore iterations of these technologies and approaches in new ways. Yeah, I mean, I think in addition to the need for looking for new delivery modalities, I think there's tools development to make the research less burdensome and long. I think that's kind of a message that I would like to send. For example, can we reduce the reliance on non-human primate multiple dose studies to figure out if we have a 
therapeutic non-vaccine ability, and those are things that are going to be needed. That's right. And then last but not least, our work across the board for us that are working in pharma and biotech with the regulatory agencies and a learning as you go process and also an information sharing process so that we can recognize what regulatory agencies are looking for early on and help to work together towards addressing some of those issues before they arise. I want to thank all of you for your attention. And if there are any questions, I think myself and the panelists would be happy to take them offline. And so thank you once again. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Pod 2018. The Pod 2019 event takes place October 7th and 8th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org.